All right, let's, uh, let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you so much for bringing us here this morning. After five years, it's great to uh, be re- reunited in fellowship. Father, I pray that you would, you would bless this morning as we tell the story of what you have done these last four years since we've been on the field. Father, we, we ask for your blessings upon us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So for those of you who don't remember us, I'm James Ellis. This is my dear wife, Lindsay. And uh, we have Elijah, my youngest, here this morning. As you can see from the picture, we are five, but uh, we keep losing them on the way. So now we're down to just three. The older two, Caleb and Josh, they're at college right now in South Carolina at Bob Jones. And then with us also this morning is Esther, our coworker. If you read our updates, you've heard her name a few times. Uh, so she's visiting us now. So this is our, our theme verse, not so much for ministry, but for life as we've been on the field this term. For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. 2 Corinthians 4.16. And this renewing uh, in the inner man day by day, you know, this this has really been a big part of our life. Uh, you guys have been getting our updates, and you've seen we've we faced a lot of struggles these last five years. And so that refreshment by the Lord... My dear wife, she took this uh, Bible verse and put it on a sticky note in the mirror in the bathroom. So every morning, you get to be refreshed by it. So we are in Uganda. Uh, you can see right here the small country called the Pearl of Africa. A lot of people ask us where it's at, and so that's why we had that map. Some people think it's in South America. It's a little small country about the size of the state of Kansas, right in the middle of Africa. And we are working with the Mahdi people. This purple inlay is the people group, about 330,000 of them. And you can see they cross the border. They're in South Sudan and Uganda, both. We are right here on the line. If I can hold this steady for a second. I had a lot of coffee, so I'm a little bit jittery. We're about three miles south of the border into Uganda. Um, As the bird flies, we're only about 10 miles from where we were living in South Sudan. We're just on the other side of that international border there. So the Mahdi are an unreached and unengaged people group. I suppose since we're there, they are engaged now. This is a list from peoplegroups.org of from zero to six. Uh, Six being us being here this morning. Uh, We're good to go. We have the the Bible in our own language. We have access to preaching on television. We have access to preaching on the radio. We have good churches to go to. We have a Christian community. That's level six. All the way to zero, that means that they have nothing, absolutely nothing in their language, no access to the gospel at all. Now, the Mahdi are a number two. So they are unreached, and unengaged, with the exception of us and our co-worker that are working there right now. All right, we believe the Mahdi are unreached for a reason, and part of that, we believe, is the language barrier, and we will go through that. The next part is that the Mahdi have been isolated from the rest of Uganda by the Nile River, and they have also been in a lot of fighting and wars, and it's hard to get in to share the gospel with people when there's a lot of fighting and unrest. So these are some pictures of uh, our friends that we've made in the village. Though so we are working to become as much of insiders as we possibly can. And that requires us to live a lot of daily life with the people. And we're going to go through and expound on that idea. Um, down at the bottom right, this guy, Tony is his name. He's become a dear friend of mine. Um, he's invited me to spend time with him and his family as they work 
Uh, so I go out to the garden with him, and for me, it's, it's a camping trip. You know, I bring my, my tent and my little camping coffee maker, and, you know, but for them, it's just life. So the, the process of living life with the people is where we were at in this last term. And moving forward in the next term, we're anticipating about two years of the same type of work before we move on. Do we need to close the curtain? Yeah. <laughs> oh, you're, okay. I was going to run over and grab it. All right, so the Mahdi have a proverb that you do not know someone until you've sat with them and done nothing. So this actually um, happens a lot in language study. We do a lot of physical work with them. We work alongside with them. Um, but then th during the downtime, we do sit with them and we do nothing. <laughs> so this is a, a short video clip of after a hunting trip that we went on. And you can see this is Joshua, my middle son, uh, there in the top right. Um, so hunting in this culture is not like it is here in the States. You don't have a gun. They have bows and arrows, but you generally don't use those either. Uh, we were hunting a little animal called a hyrax. Um, it's a, like an oversized rodent that lives in the rocks. And uh, it, we spent about nine, well, we traveled about nine miles walking through the bush looking for large piles of rocks. And we had a bunch of dogs with us. And when you see something, you know, that, that moves around, scurries around, you get excited and everybody starts running towards it and you're, you're throwing rocks. And if you happen to hit it, then you jump on it and you pound it into submission. Um, that was our hunting trip. And we, we had a very successful day. We, uh, we got nine of them. Uh, so this is a short video of after the hunting trip, you're, you're exhausted. During that time where you're doing that, you don't really have time to engage in, uh, in any meaningful conversations. And afterwards, you're too tired to really have much for meaningful conversations. So you can see, just trying to enjoy the fruits of our labor. Uh, we had a, a barbecue where we roasted the meat and we ate cassava with it. All right, the Mahdi have another proverb and it's called, we ourselves know the truth. And what they mean by that is that it is okay to lie to outsiders because us in this group, we know ourselves. We know really what the truth is. So that showed to us the importance of becoming an insider in their community and to become as Mahdi as much as possible as we could. Right. So like humanitarians, NGOs, even other missionaries will come and set up uh, teachings or conferences, and people that we know from the village will go to these things, and they'll spend all day there and listen to the teaching, and you ask them, so what did you learn? They say, well, I, I didn't learn anything. Well, well, why did you go? What were you hoping to learn? Well, you know, they had soda there. Um, so to them, uh, outsiders, they come and go all the time and have for generations, and so they don't really think of them in the same way as they think of themselves. Um, it, an outsider is some, a, it's a resource to look at. Now, in East African culture, it's generally understood that they only recognize three levels of relationship. Uh, first is your clan member. That's your family. That is what we are hoping to become. Second is your enemy that you fight against, and that's what we definitely don't want to be. And then third is the cow that you get milk from. And that's where most outsiders end up being. It's just a resource. And so this we know ourselves idea means that they don't think of lying in the same way that we do. You will say whatever you can in order to try and get the resource from the outsider. 
And it's not really considered something that's bad in their culture. And so we are struggling, like we've said, I guess this is probably the fourth or fifth time now, to become insiders as much as possible. And that requires living as much of our life with the people in the village as we possibly can. Now, you can see from these pictures, the Mahdi people consider themselves peasant farmers. If they filled out a resume, that's what they would put down. We are peasant farmers. So they don't have a large land that they go and they farm that they own. They rent land from people. And it generally is about an hour and a half to two hour walk to their garden. And so every day they gather up their tools, they put it on their shoulder, and they, they walk that hour and a half to two hours. And then they work all day digging cassava, digging sweet potatoes, put it in a sack and carry it back. And so for us to join them in that, it requires a lot of walking. And that's what these two pictures on the right are. It's just walking to the garden with them. And then on the left, this is threshing sorghum. Everything is done by hand. They don't have any mechanization. And it is, it is hard work. So in this picture here, it's about 100 degrees and really humid, and you're out there just beating it and beating it. And as I'm doing this, you know, men would walk by and they would laugh. And I'd say, well, you know, what's so funny? Why are you laughing? I'm like, well, you're doing woman's work. I'm like, well, why are you calling this woman's work? You know, just trying to learn the culture a little bit. And they say, well, because it's easy. I'm like, no, no, it's, it's not easy. But life there is, is hard from top to bottom. Every single thing that you have to do in life is hard. Uh, if you want to get a drink of water, you have to walk 15 minutes to go wait in line so you can use a hand pump well and then carry that water back that 15 minutes. Some people, it's even further than that. That's it for cooking, for showering, for doing your laundry, for everything. Not to mention like firewood. That's what you cook with is firewood. And it's about that hour and a half to two hour walk to go and gather the firewood and, and carry it home. So everything in life they do is hard. So that's the perspective that this threshing sorghum is, is easy and it's woman's work. For me, it's, it's not. I have a very difficult time staying up with the men there. I have a difficult time even staying up with men that are 15, 20 years older than me in work. And so I'm, I'm struggling in order to reach that level. <clears throat> so another Mahdi proverb is we learn by doing, and that, that works really well during language study. So this is um, a situation when we go into the community, we go to somebody's house, and we learn what they do day to day. So every day, you will find a woman that is grinding paste. This is either peanut butter or sesame seeds. These are actually small black sunflower seeds that I'm grinding with her. So this kind of gives you an idea of how we're learning along with them. So they're laughing, saying, You so laughing because she's pushing too hard, that illustrates one of the things, the biggest difference, and for me, the hardest thing to adapt to. You have this idea, this American work ethic is what we call, 
where you know time is money, and so all of our work is dictated by time. And I mean, time is our most valuable resource, is it not? It's the only resource where you can never get more of, and you don't know how much you have. But in this culture, time is not the most valuable resource because the work never ends, and all of it is hard. So why would you wear yourself out trying to hurry up and finish the work? That's why she was pushing harder, so she can grind that paste properly. Well, for them, they grind it softly, gently, and put it back on and do it again. And if it needs done, then they do it again three or four times. They don't think of it in terms of time. And you see this when you go and you work in the garden with somebody. They give you a section of dirt to dig about the size of this group of pews right here. And for me, as a good American, you know, I grab the, the hoe, and it's, it's a, got a six-foot-long handle and about a three-pound iron head on it. And I'm out there, and I'm hitting the dirt and just trying to get it done as fast as I can. Well, everybody gets a good laugh out of that. And why is it so funny? Well, because I'm going to wear myself out. And I, and I do. I can get the work done, but then I'm completely done for the rest of the day. I wouldn't have the energy to go and collect water to, to shower, uh, let alone to help with anything else that needs done. For them, the pace of life is so different. When they're digging, they... Hit the ground, take a step. Hit the ground, take a step. And it can be very infuriating when you first get there until you learn empathetically to see the world through their eyes. It is a disadvantage to try and just get the work done because you're never going to get the hard work done. There's always something else that needs done on top of that. And this is, for me, the hardest thing that I have to change to completely see the world differently and not think of it in terms of time. So part of uh, our language study, we are in language study right now, and there's four phases of language study. The first phase is words, verbs, um, simple things like that, simple sentences. So like pew, standing, sitting, jumping, walking. This is a video that illustrates the level two phase. So we take an activity, these are shea nuts, um, they roast them and they grind them and they eat the paste. So for us women here, we use it for lotion, they eat it. It's actually pretty good. Um, so this is part of a process. This is a six to eight hour process and we take every step and we break it down um, and then we go back and we learn it. So she's saying it, I'm repeating it and doing it. So this is just one step, like she was saying here, for six to eight hours of this process. It's just one step out of it. So what, what I'm saying is ma is me, awa is the name of the shea nut oil, mvu is scoop, gutia is the sack, ah is in. Um, and so just all day long, you're out and you're doing this. Then you take it and you, you diagram it, you record it, you take pictures of it, and you go back to the office and you make a, uh, a picture of the individual steps. Mm -hmm. Then you sit with your language helper and you go through and you drill that in a controlled environment for about two hours. Then you get a good recording. And then later on in the day, in the evening, uh, you listen to that recording interactively for about two more hours. And this is a typical day 
in language study. So like she was mentioning in phase one is single words, phase two is simple sentences. Phase three is you go back to that process that you were doing and you do it now in story form. So now you're, you're learning the story of when you went to go make shea nut oil and you know, something happened, maybe some kid greeted you on the way or a pig ran through and everybody laughed. And so this is part of that story. And so you get it five to, well, 15. five to 15 minute recording and you transcribe that entire story and you translate it out and you learn it well enough to be able to tell it back, but you change it when you tell it back. If it was I, then you change it to we. If it was we, then you change it to they, like that. And so this is phase three. Now, in this, this transcribing process, it's really challenging to learn a language this way. If you were learning English, you have hundreds of years of literacy where English hasn't really changed. So if you go into a language that, that's uh, undeveloped, where you don't have these helps, you have to figure it out yourself. Now, imagine you're learning English like this, and somebody, they use slang. They say, I don't know, what you gonna do? And so you go, oh, okay, I got a new word, whatcha? And you write it down, and you learn it. And then the next day, you ask somebody, you say, whatcha? And they scratch their head, like, that's not English. I'm like, well, no, you said it yesterday, see, I got it. And they're like, no, no, no. Whatcha means, what are you? And so every single language has these built into it. And so as we learn it, we have to sort through that. Because really there's three different levels of language. You have what you mean in your mind. You have how it actually comes across, how you say it. And then you have the interpretation of that. But on top of that, you also have the written form. So in the written form, I'm actually, and I mean, I'm not probably the best choice for it, but I'm... I'm the only one there to do it. The one that's solidifying the language, the, the spelling in this language. I'm making a dictionary from Mahdi into English. And so in phase three, going through this, it really, it really helps with that. We have a helper that comes that's, uh, that's very well educated and he's bilingual. And he helps me go through, sort through this and helps me write it down phonetically if I didn't hear it properly. So we have a, a short recording of this transcription, it's the first two lines and a little bit of the third line. We'll play for you and see if you can kind of follow it along. It sounds very foreign. It's, it's very, very challenging. Uh, so our, our co-worker here, Esther, she went to a linguistic school in Mexico for a year. In that school, they were using this language as an example of a hard language because some of the sounds in this language are very rare. So this is a, a tonal language in that each word on average has four to six meanings depending on how you say it. Yeah, so it, it's very similar to Mandarin Chinese in that sense. So this is um, a short recording that'll kind of illustrate that. Supposed to be... Right. So he's speaking English, but he's saying it in the way that you would say Mahdi. Supposed to be... He's saying it's supposed to be... So in this language, 
When they ask a question, they don't have words that you input into the sentence that make it a question. So in English, we would say, how long is this recording supposed to be? And then you know it's a question because you, you say, how? So in this language, you just change the way you say it. He's saying, it's supposed to be, and he's singing it like that. So if I want to ask you, how are you? I say, neat da. If I want to say you're good, I say, neat da. If I'm asking you how your morning was, I say, oh, we're and you have to drag it out like that. Um, it sounds really strange on your tongue as you're saying it, but you, I don't know, eventually you get used to it kind of, but it's still, it sounds strange to have to sing like that. Being a tonal language, it has a very sing-songy pattern to it. All right, so this is a photo of William Shakespeare Posse, and we have, I think we've mentioned him in our updates. He is the man that comes to help us to write down the tonal marks for this language. Um, I'll give you a background on the language so you can understand the struggles um, that the Mahdi people are going to have and also one of the reasons why we think they're still unreached. In the 1940s, the Catholics came in and they used the Italian alphabet to write down the Mahdi language. In the 1980s, um, a Catholic priest reached out to SIL, the Summer Institute of Linguistics. They reached out to some ling uh, linguists and they said, we have tried for 40 years to get the Mahdi to try to get them to learn how to read, and we can't. We must be doing something wrong. At this time, the Mahdi themselves were refugees in South Sudan. Um, so SIL sent a group, a team, to go in um, to work and learn their language. So they found out there's four um, tones, and there is light vowels and heavy vowels. So you have 36 vowels in the language. Now in the Italian alphabet, there's only five. So there's a problem right there. So when you read the language without any tonal marks, you cannot, it's an educated guess, you have to know what it says beforehand when you read it. It's like a memory guide. So William Shakespeare Passy, he was the first one trained in the 80s with the group. So he is the last one living that knows the tonal marks. So he is helping us. Um, SIL did try starter reader, like literacy, pre-literacy programs in the 90s. There was a lot of backlash against it. They said it was too hard, um, it was too foreign with the tonal marks, and it was too Protestant. We were trying to steal converts if you have tonal marks, because you can read it. So there is a lot of challenges going forward when we talk about doing a literacy program that you guys can pray about. So here's a, a short audio sample so you can kind of see. It's a woman, she's speaking very slowly and very concisely to pronounce these words that in English it would be the same word. You would spell it A apostrophe I. See if you can hear the difference here. A I. A I. A I. Okay, so the first one is receive, like to receive something. The, the second one is salt, like what you put on your food. And the third one is, means that, that it's theirs. And that's the, the way that the language functions. And so if you don't have these tonal marks, uh, like what we have up here on the top left, then, like, like she was saying, it's, it's indecipherable. You, you have to take a guess. So this is a, a Bible verse that's written here. And Lindsay will read it. She, has, she reads a little better. So the Mahdi have, um, in 1970, they made a, just a New Testament. That's all they've had. But... They have trouble reading it. So I took this. They call it flat Mahdi. From, I just took a Bible verse to give you an idea. 
It's Ichandi Anadria Yesu Ori Kilegi Oposi. Ana Ori Kora Voru Kendre Ariani. And it's disturbed himself Jesus. He sat and he prayed hard. And his sweat fell to the ground and it looked like blood. Now, you see there's ori in both. Ori is right here and it's right here. But you see the options that you have with ori. You could say Jesus was disturbed and he prayed hard and he's a coward. You could say Jesus is a coward, that's why he prayed hard and then his sweat looked like blood. You could... (laughs) Well, these, these words right here are the different choices you would have depending on the tone of these words. So when somebody is trying to read this, and we'll see people that actually do try, they get so frustrated, they just shut it because you don't know what it says. And then on the what is that the left, the upper left, there is some of the tonal marks, and you can see that some of these words, it's just nuances from to steal, a thief, thieves, stolen, even like just your back, your ogu. So that you, lo- you lose kind of the meaning of what somebody's trying to say. So this, yeah, um, and Wycliffe, the Bible translators and SIL, have refused to print any materials in the Mahdi language without tonal marks. Right. And for us sitting here, it seems, it seems obvious, you know, like, well, well, why would you have it without tonal marks? But the resistance, she had mentioned a lot of the, uh, the religious resistance, but there's even secular resistance. Because people that they were, they're Mahdi, but they were raised in the city and they're really out of touch with their language. Uh, Maybe they know English really well or they know another language that they can read in like Swahili. They don't understand the need for it. And when they see on a page that you have these different marks on it, then it makes them look primitive. And that's what they call it. That's a primitive language and nobody wants to be associated with that. So there's, there's resistance in the government, there's resistance amongst the people that are educated, and there's religious resistance. And, and all of this is culminating to really stop the Mahdi people from being able to read the Word of God in their own language. Bible translation. Right, okay, so uh, there, there's actually two Bible translations that are going on right now. And one of them is done by a group that's trained by SIL. Uh, Summer Institute of Linguistics, and they are using the tonal marks. And so they've got about five years left on their translation, and they've invited me to be a consultant in their translation. The people that are doing the translation, they, they don't really have much education. They just have a few block classes on linguistics. And they're translating supposedly from the, the Greek and Hebrew, but it ends up being mostly from English. And so... You know, that's, that's one of the things that you guys can pray about, is that I can learn the language quick enough where I'll have the ability to, to speak into this translation and help them as much as I can. Right now, I'm trying, and there's some, some pretty big things that I've been able to find, one of which is the word for faith. Um, they've translated it straight from the way that the Catholics use it, and they use the word receive. So every place in the New Testament where it has faith or believe, they say receive. Because if you think about it from the Catholic's perspective of their gospel, the priest is standing behind the communion table and he says, come up and receive Christ, receive forgiveness. So the Catholics translated that into the Bible. And this group was just copying it because they've been taught by somebody that the word for receive can also mean believe. Uh, So I went round and round with them and and 
got them to change it by the grace of God. But that just shows the importance of me being able to understand the Mahdi well enough, because if they get something like that wrong, what else are they going to get wrong? And it would be, it would be disastrous for us to, to be ready to start teaching and not be able to use that translation. So that's definitely a point of prayer. So we're going to kind of move on to culture. Um, the Mahdi have a belief, they call it life rubbing. And you cannot become a real human or a good person without being rubbed by life as in community events, weddings, funerals, baby naming ceremonies. So part of when we go out into the community and we're with them and they're important events, we don't know what we're getting into a lot of times. This is a wedding. So each clan brings gifts to the bride and groom and you have to kind of be the most flamboyant flamboyant in yeah. your gift giving, and then you win. So this is James. They got him to carry a goat for part. So. Yeah, so I'm not very excited about this video being on here, but Lindsay said, you know, it was the best way to make this point. Well, after this instance with him carrying a goat, we got lots of requests to go to other weddings. And then our clan started looking at us a little differently because we were willing, or he was willing to become involved and make himself vulnerable. Yeah. <laughs> vulnerable, there you go. So you think of it kind of like when you were young and you went to a family reunion and they do limbo and polka and things like that. It's it's very it is it, it has, it's very very similar to that, but uh, with a you know the African flair. But yeah, as as Lindsay was saying, this went a long ways to help us um, to be looked at differently in the community. The people had asked me to do it, and then they were shocked that I actually did it. You know, it's to be humble is much better than to be humbled. And I'm not a humble man, but this was very, this required a lot of humility to do. And the people noticed it. And so my relationship with the clan, the Pamede clan, has really, really grown. My language helper, the one that was helping me dance there, he has become a huge source of information as an insider to help us navigate through the culture. So with this life rubbing that Lindsay had mentioned, it is required that you go to all of the community events. They actually have a book there that every family, their name is written in this book. And when you go to a community event, whether or not you go, it, it's written in there. And how much you donate to it is written in there. And we got a page in this book. We've been accepted to that level. And, you know, there's times where you really don't want to go. You're busy, you're behind on, on everything that's important to you, you know, and you've been sick for two weeks and you just now are feeling better and then somebody decides they want to get married and you have to go. And a funeral and wedding is not like it is here. It's, it's an all-day event, sometimes multi-days. But my language helper, he came and he told me, he said, James, if you don't go to all of these things and when it comes time for you to speak when you're actually ready to, nobody's going to come to hear you. Well, that, that's, that's a powerful way to put it. So I'm dancing with the goat for Jesus. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not too ashamed to say that I am culturally obligating them 
to come and hear the gospel when it's time to preach it. What a wonderful opportunity, though. You meet missionaries that have been on the field ministering for decades, and they can't find anybody to have a relationship with. We are with a people that has it ingrained in the foundation of their culture that they have to take outsiders and help them become insiders as much as that person is willing to do it. It's an incredible opportunity for the gospel. But when you are living life with people, you know, it's not always sunny and a nice day with laughter. There's a sad, darker side to it as well. This is a video from a, a funeral that we went to. And uh, funerals in, in African culture are sad. You really get to see the spiritual condition of the people when they're confronted with death. Now, it's been said since long before us, actually David Livingston even said it back in the mid-1800s, that in Africa nobody ever dies for no reason. Meaning that, you know, when, when Bob dies of malaria, it's not the malaria that killed him. There was a spiritual reason that he got malaria and died. And you really see that come out in funerals. Now, there's two different types of funerals with the Mahdi. They have, when somebody that's older dies, they have a celebration. They, they see it as this person has, has lived a full life, and now they are giving their blessings to other people to have. Because they also believe that there's only so many blessings in the world. And you get ahead in life, not by hard work and education and diligence. You get ahead in life by going to the witch doctor and doing certain rites to appease the spirits, to steal blessings from other people. And so if you're down and somebody else is up, then that means that that person has stolen your blessing. So when somebody that's older dies, it's a celebration because they've willingly giving, given their blessings to the community to share but when somebody that's younger dies, the way they say it, that dies out of time, then you see the spiritual condition of the people. This is a video from a, a wedding of a man who's about funeral. four yeah. funeral. <laughs> um, a man that was about 40 years old, and he got sick in the evening and died before sunup the next day. <laughs> So this woman to the right of the video is actually talking. So the, the women are going and they're talking to the spirit of the dead man one, asking questions, but also just to the spirits in general, um, asking questions like, why did you have to do this? Why did you have to, why didn't you pay this person back? Why did you think that you were better than everybody else? Why did you have to kill him? Like this, just searching for an answer. And it's really, really hard to see this. And afterwards, the, the family gets together, and sometimes they'll, they'll be together for two or three days having a meeting trying to discern the reason why this person died. So they sit around and they talk about, you know, 20 years ago, uh, you stole something and you didn't apologize. Um, and just trying to find some reason for it, then they have a, a, a spiritual rite that they go through, whether it's sacrificing animals or 
um, saying a certain thing a certain way, some sort of ritual in order to appease the spirit to stop the deaths at that person so it doesn't continue to spread. Um, and this isn't an isolated thing. This is the spiritual condition of the people in the village where we're at here. So you can play the video. Okay. All right, so this, the, the people that are more standing in the front, both of them are having a hard time having children. This is a family unit. The elder that you see is the elder of the family, and he's holding together broomsticks. And he's going to hand out uh, brooms, like a piece of the broomstick to each member of the family. And if a member is missing, the other family member will hold it for them. This is to show cohesion within the family unit on what they're going to do. You will see there's a table in the middle, and they have a chicken on it. I think the chicken actually fell down at this point. But then he's going to walk around with a goat on the outside of the circle, and he's telling the demons, we do not want you here. We want you to leave. And what, they're, what he's saying is he's putting them into the chicken and the goat, and then he's going to, he can't sit down, and he can't look back after this process, and he's taking to this, these animals to the family head, and they're going to sacrifice them to also to help with this problem of not being able to have children. This event is always followed up by the next slide, um, and they call it a clan deliverance meeting. And what that is is they will type you up a piece of paper, and they'll bring it to our house, and they'll say, we are having a clan deliverance meeting to get rid of the evil spirits um, because we're having problems within our clan, and they will pay around $300 for a Catholic priest to come in. And the Catholic priest is going to go and spread holy water and sprinkle salt on plants, trees, water areas, wherever they have their evil spirits um, that are bothering them. So this is what we would call syncretism. Very good picture of it. The family that you saw in the video before, that was at a Catholic teacher's house. Then they do this. So this is kind of the things that we're seeing. So the, the spiritual condition is that they're just, they're really confused. Um, and they're combining all of the different spiritual ideas that they've been exposed to, just hoping to find an answer for the suffering that they have, the diseases, the sicknesses, the death, and the poverty. That's a really big thing also that they talk about a lot. Um, they, they're looking for the spiritual purpose behind it. Um, so, I mean, this really drives home the importance of what I've, I've talked about, I keep mentioning, this becoming an insider. So when I speak the truth, when I speak the word of God, the true gospel of Christ into their, their language, into their heart, they'll learn to recognize that it's not just another spiritual thing to, to appease. That they can see that there's no other name given under heaven by which men may be saved, but the Lord Jesus Christ. That he's not something to just set on a shelf to add to all of the other spiritual things that you're working towards. Uh, so this is really the driving force for the ministry that we're doing and why we're doing it this way. The whole land and all the tombs on the land. The tomb of the... So yeah, this is the Catholic priest uh, sprinkling holy water trying to help drive out This is just behind our house. You can see our roof in the background there. Um, right here. So... Um, yeah, the spiritual condition of the Mahdi people. And in the previous video, we, talked, we had talked about uh, spiritual rites that they do, and that was an example of these spiritual rites. Mm -hmm. 
So another one is Ba Eitirii, and they believe that they call it the people who live under the water. Um, we've had a series of young men die in our community, 18, 20 years old, 22, I mean, several of them. It brought a lot of fear. Um, one of the funerals, there was an 18-year-old who suddenly died. And what the family does is they got together and they said, there's, you know, there's a spiritual reason for it. They believed that it was his half-brother. The half-brother confesses that he goes to the people who live under the water. So what they do is they give um, offerings to the people under the water, but they always have to give a person. And what he gave was his brother. They write down a name. Well, the family then decided they were going to inject their son's body, who died, with termite poison. They want it to rot faster because they do believe that you can be reanimated like a zombie um, and can be controlled by people. So they destroyed their son's body uh, so the people under the water could not have it. Now, the other half-brother is now going crazy because the demons want the body. They wanted the mother because now they only have a rotten body. They want the mother, and he said no. So then he said the demons are going to come after him now. They're going to kill him. This is um, not an isolated event. This is something that you will hear at funerals when you sit in on those family meetings. Um, this is a way for them to get ahead. This young man wanted to become a musician, um, and so that's what he did is he um, did offerings to the demons for that. And the people are, are very scared of this kind of thing, this reanimation. Um, even people that aren't dead can be brought while they're asleep and forced to work for other people. And that's, so if your neighbor's garden is doing better, then um, you know, this is one of the reasons why. Uh, like we had a woman, she came to us and said that you know, when she woke up in the morning, she had mud on her feet. Uh, so that was proof that the neighbor had done something spiritually to cause her to become a zombie at night and work in his garden for him. Um, and the accusation is oftentimes enough. Um, that's, that's all the proof that it takes. So uh, this, this here is, is Beatrice on the left and her mother on the right. I was sitting with her and uh, she was complaining that she's, she's an old woman and it's hard to get firewood and her back hurts and her neck hurts and you know, it takes, it's about an hour and a half walk for her to go get firewood. And I said, well, um, so the, the picture here is from her house. I said, well, why don't you go to those woods right there and collect your firewood? And she said, oh, no, 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 you, you can't go into there. So later on, I found out that this, this section of woods is called a mulajo. It's a spiritual forest. And they have them scattered all around the community. And this is where their ancestral spirits live. Uh, so when the community has questions that they want answered, whether it's finding out who committed a crime or why these people can't get married or why they can't have children or why this person is sick, they would go into these spiritual forests and offer sacrifices to their ancestors to get the answers. Uh, so, I mean, we're really beating a dead horse, but, the, you know, people understand superstition and they use that phrase a lot when we're talking about this. And I'm trying to illustrate for you that this isn't superstition. This animism, is, it's similar to superstition, but it's an entire worldview that follows people from birth to death. And they're trapped in this bondage, and they don't know a way out. So this is um, a video of the community came together, and they decided that they needed to say goodbye properly to our sons, our older two sons, when they left for college. They knew they weren't coming back. It made them sad. So they wanted to put something together 
for them. And they gave them gifts. They gave them cloth and money and food and a rooster and other things. So you can play the video. Right. Yeah. that we were trees that have been bent by the wind and we can't be bent back, that we are Madi now. So they gave us, the Palmeri clan is the one that adopted us um, and they gave us names. He's Anzo and I'm Anzoa, which is just the female version of the name and it means excited and happy. Right. And we, our, our compound that we live, we are Palmerica uh, for the Palmeri clan. We've been adopted into the village to this point. Um, this was really exciting. About 200 people showed up. About a fifth of the entire village showed up to this to say goodbye. Now, in this communal culture, when somebody goes off to school, it's generally accepted that the entire community helps. Um, and so that was what they were wanting to do with these gifts, is to help send Caleb and Josh off to college. They had accepted them as part of their family like that. Uh, this, is, this is huge. So relationally, we're a lot further than we are linguistically. Um, the language is challenging. And so we're, I'm just, I'm excited that, the, you know, we pray that this group of people will be the foundation of the, the new church that we're hoping to establish there. And ultimately, that is our ministry that we're working on, um, to have a literacy group to teach them how to read their own language. And that's what Lindsay and Esther will be working on. And then I will be translating teaching material into the language and teaching the word of God to establish an indigenous church plant. Um, and we've, we've talked a lot about the challenges and things that we'll face, but ultimately that's what we're working on, to teach them to read. Because you can't have a strong church with strong disciples of Christ without the ability to read and study the word of God for yourself. I can stand up and teach all I want, but then how are they going to take that teaching to the next village? How are they going to, to use that to train the next group of leaders to come up in the next church? So if we don't teach them this, then it's going to end with us and the work that we do. It won't be able to carry on. So here in John chapter 6, Jesus goes through this really hard teaching on the bread of life. And then afterwards, a lot of his disciples left. And so he looks over to Simon Peter and says, so Simon, are you going to leave too? And I love his response here in verse 68. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And so that's our prayer, that we can bring those words of eternal life to the Mahdi people and teach them the word of God, to teach them the true gospel of Christ as we go forward. So we thank you for partnering with us in this over so many years. And uh, we thank you for the opportunity to share here this morning what the Lord has been doing uh, in our lives in this ministry over these last few years. So we have like two minutes. Questions? Yep. Well, first of all, let me say it's great to see you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Many missionaries have reported deliverance, being involved in deliverance ministry with the very demonic influence cultures. Like right. I'm wondering what your thoughts are. Have you seen anything or been involved in anything or what your thoughts are on the whole deliverance thing? Um, you know, so I can briefly mention that. that that's, that's a bigger subject. Um, but what are they using to deliver them? They don't know God. They don't know his word. They, you, have, you have people ultimately that, you know, and, and you see the story in the book of Acts, and I, I'm going to butcher it. Um, is it Simon? Simon that was casting out demons in the name of Jesus that Paul knew. And so ultimately, that's what it ends up becoming is something like that. And so we're not involved with those sort of things. We are teaching the word of God and making disciples. Right now, we're learning the language. And once we reach the point where we can speak and articulate clearly, then that's what we'll be doing. And then those sort of details will get worked out through the teaching and through the word of God. I guess in like the elevator version, that's, that's my answer. <laughs> Yes. Well, not necessarily. So language learning, and that, that was a, that's a myth, actually, that I myself had believed, and I recently learned otherwise. All age groups learn languages at the same rate. Someone that's still sharp-minded in their 70s will learn a language at the same rate, with the same amount of hours of work, as someone who's 10. The difference is going to be, as you age, it's harder to change everything in a way where you take on a learner's role. But as far as just number of hours spent in language study, it's the same. The, what makes it really, really harder is also your accent. Once you reach about 20 years old, um, it becomes really challenging to get rid of your accent. And so that was something that our boys did. Like if you hear Elijah speak, he doesn't know near as much as I do, but he sounds just like a native speaker. Uh, and for me, that takes a lot of drilling uh, in order to try and take the edge off the accent so I can be understood. I've noticed on that list you had of the words mm -hmm. on the upper left, just a little change can make a big difference. Yes. Yep. Yeah. yeah. It took about six months for me to be able to even hear the tonal difference. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's really challenging. In some ways, these languages are easier. But for an, an English speaker, it's really challenging because, you know, when we think of tone, it's like, you know, you tell your kids, don't take that tone with me. But this, you know, you, you have to sing. It's, it's just like musical notes. You have to hit those notes. Otherwise, it changes the meaning. And this, the tonal structure is sentence-wise as far as in English, like I was talking about with asking a question, but it's also word and syllable. So all of those change depending on how you say it.